ethics is your entry ticket into politics. That is the first dissident message. Second dissident message, rule of law. They're fighting for human rights. We're fighting for constitutionalism. You're fighting for a society where rule of law matters. And thirdly, you have this European dimension, but it is joining a European project based on values. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Forum 2000 online chat. My name is Irena Palhousova and I will be moderating uh, today's, uh, today's uh, chat. It's my pleasure to welcome here Jacques Rupnik, who is a political scientist. Uh, he was born in Prague. He lived here first 15 years of his life. Uh, and then he studied political science and history at Sorbonne and also uh, at Harvard. And in the 70s, he worked for BBC, and uh, later on, he became professor at Sciences Po in Paris, and uh, later, he became a professor at College of Europe. In the early 90s, he was an advisor to President Václav Havel here in Prague. Welcome, Jacques Rupnik. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, and. Uh, for sharing your ideas with us. And uh, I would like to ask you uh, about uh, populism, because just recently you published an article with your colleague Jan Zielonka, which is called From Revolution to Counter-Revolution, Democracy in Central and Eastern Europe 30 Years Old. So uh, building on your article, I would like to ask you or start with a question. Uh, about populism and the current health crisis. To what extent do you think that COVID-19 is going to actually strengthen uh, this uh, rise of populism? Or to what extent actually it can be uh, the case that uh, after seeing how the populist governments were able to deal with the crisis or were not able to deal with the crisis, to to what extent this can actually uh, stop them or decrease the popularity of populism? Well, there are two aspects. And actually, the last part of your question is partly also an answer to that. Uh, first of all, it is true that the populist uh, leaders that have been establishing their powers and their hold on power in Central Europe, but also elsewhere, uh, have a strong temptation to use the crisis to consolidate and strengthen them pa their power. So uh, this is a temptation in all crises. You know, you have a crisis, leave it to me, and uh, the argument that your security comes first, I will look after uh, uh, the way it is implemented. And that has been uh, attempted quite successfully in Hungary, uh, mainly, uh, but not only, you know, in a very milder form, uh, even in the Czech Republic, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister Babish, uh, who a year ago was challenged by a quarter million people in the streets, is now, you know, quite safely in command and saying, you know, my performance in the COVID crisis is testimony to the fact that, uh, you know, these things should be left to people who know how to handle this. And uh, uh, we have seen Poland, where um, also they even wanted to squeeze the election out completely. There was a 
COVID in the midst of a presidential election. So they canceled the campaign and they simply wanted to have poster voting, etc. So this is using the crisis, the COVID crisis, as an opportunity to strengthen your power. Uh, however, there is the other side of the coin. It all depends on the performance. And <laughs> that is very uneven. It has been quite good in Central Europe. So you could say in Central Europe, it has worked to some extent. And we will see whether that is the case in the longer run, not necessarily, as we have seen actually in the Polish election, very tight, and uh, um, you can have surprises. But where uh, the performance is poor, or even pretty disastrous, you may have a, a backlash against the uh, authoritarian leader, either because he has underestimated uh, the COVID crisis, or because he has mishandled it. And of course, we have a big debate now in the United States on that subject. We have a debate in Brazil. In a number of places like that, you have the populist leader challenged, uh, basically, uh, on his performance in the crisis. Um, yes. And... Uh... You mentioned the United States, you mentioned uh, Central Europe, and the truth is that uh, we saw the, the rise of populism or popularity of populist leaders across uh, transatlantic region. And uh, so I would like to ask you about comparison between the two, because uh, on the one hand, we hear that Central and Eastern European countries were not matured enough and democracy was not rooted enough. And this is partially an explanation for the popularity of, of populist uh, leaders who st uh, came out and uh, presented very easy solutions to uh, complex problems. But on the other hand, we see the popularity of populism in very established democracies like the United States, like uh, Great Britain. Uh, we saw it in France, in Italy. So to, you know, what do you find similar and what do you find different in uh, populist uh, or popularity of populist leaders in so-called the West and so-called the East, if I use this uh, not very, very, I think, good and popular Cold War rhetoric. Yeah, well, we can use uh, the terms Old East and Old West. And uh, um, yeah, we know what we are talking about, uh, the old pre-1989 divide. And well, I think that when we observe the picture, of course, um, we have had the temptation, many people in the West had the temptation to say, well, look at it, the backsliding, the democratic backsliding, the populist resurgence in Central Europe shows that the old East-West divide is back in a new form. And that was then uh, uh, strengthened by the responses to the migration crisis. So you had then the combination that here are the Visegrad countries in particular, but more or less East Central Europe. They are backsliding on democracy, illiberal democracy, as Orban put it, backsliding, uh, resistant to European, uh, joint European effort on the migration crisis. And it creates the image of an East-West divide. I think if one looks more closely, one sees very similar features. Uh, and specific Central European ones. So the, the common feature 
is the erosion of trust in democratic institutions, erosion of trust in political elites. I mean, the, the, so the moment when a, an elected leader has strong legitimacy to implement political change, for instance, those periods are getting shorter and shorter, not just in Central Europe, they're getting short in the West. Uh, you have 100 days <laughs> to do your programs, and after that, you are struggling, and then the following year, you're already preparing the next re-election, if you can. Um, so uh, that is a joint problem I think we have seen. Some authors ascribe it to uh, the impact of the uh, international financial and economic crisis of 2008, that this set the ground for... Uh, uh, for the populist uh, uh, resurgence that it created in society, uh, a deep divide and hostility in part of the society to the post-89 triumph of globalization. And the winners and losers of globalization in Central Europe, we would say winners and losers of the transition. Okay, you have that one, uh, 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 one argument about the common features or common roots of, uh, of the populist phenomenon. You have then the responses, as I mentioned, to the, uh, to the migration crisis, which then created the idea that uh, um, uh, Central Europe in particular um, uh, was hostile to the idea of bringing in new migrants because it threatened uh, the identity, the national identity. So then you have a second feature in the populist debate, in the debate about the roots of populism, is a question of identity, pop, identity politics and basically the uh, civic or ethnic definition of nationhood. How inclusive is your concept of nationhood. And then Central Europe was obviously seen as clinging to a, uh, uh, a non-inclusive concept of uh, uh, at least rejecting the idea of an open society uh, in, in that respect. And that then connects with the third element, which we see, again, we see it East and West, but with specific uh, emphasis in the East. And these are what you could call culture wars. And uh, some of them are connected to the previous issue I mentioned. And this ranges from uh, uh, abortion, particularly strong in, in, uh, in countries like Poland or Slovakia right now, they are changing the law on abortion in Slovakia, Croatia, countries where you have strong Catholic church. It can be uh, uh, gay marriage, uh, LGBT, all these kind of range issue of issues, which, um, as I say, divide democratic polities across the board, but much more strongly in uh, in Central Europe. So this is uh, um, the rejection, let's say, of the. Liber societal liberalism. This is this is this is interesting because you reject the liberal predicament either on economic grounds. Globalization was threatening 
certain social groups in our societies. You rejected on national grants, threat to the nation, if you open your borders and have a facing huge migration impact. And then you have the threat to the social fabric, to the family, to the constitutive values. And this is what you hear in countries of Central Europe, in Poland in particular. Uh, you know, the Polish, uh, uh, former Polish foreign minister, Wachikowski put it, you know, here we are, they're trying to force on us a Europe of cyclists and vegetarian who despise everything uh, that is connected to the nation and to the church. So you have it in one sentence, you have it practically all there. So, so this, is, this is where the dividing line is. But I wouldn't say this is a divide east-west. This is a divide within our countries. This is a divide within Poland, as we have seen in the presidential election. It's a divide uh, in most Central European countries. And it's a divide also in the West. Simply the balance <laughs> is tilting more in the conservative direction uh, in Central Europe and perhaps more in the liberal direction in, in uh, Western Europe. But it should not be underestimated that the, uh, this divide that I am referring to is very much present in the West as well. And the populist movements that thrive on it uh, are present in the West. Look at Italy. Until last year, it had the key, the strong man in the government was Mr. Salvini and his Northern League. Until a year ago, we had in Austria a government made of center-right with extreme-right. <laughs> now it is, now they switch to center-right with uh, uh, Greens. Okay, that, that's, that's uh, for liberals, this is a preferable option. But uh, uh, all this suggests that um, these are shared features and simply perhaps the biggest difference between East and West and this is the resilience of institutions. What people in the West, I think this is true for United States, it's true for, true for Britain after Brexit, it's true for most West European countries. You say, well, the elections can produce very um, uh, problematic results for liberal democracies, but at the end of the day, you have established institutions that can provide limits of on the populist drift. So even if a populist incumbent had uh, the ambition to tamper with the, uh, 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 with the polity, he would have great difficulty because there are established institutions, constitutional courts, etc., etc. The rule of law uh, is much more difficult to tamper with. Uh, uh, whereas the, in Central Europe, we have seen in Hungary, in Poland and elsewhere, uh, attempts basically to undermine the rule of law, the separation of power, the independence of the constitutional court. And that, of course, is the key problem with populism. Populism is not a problem that you elect a government that people don't like. It's, it's a problem that you might not get a chance to re-elect a different one. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, the confiscation of power and the use of the tools uh, of the state control of public broadcasting media, a number of other means that the, in, that the populist party in power can have, as we have seen in Hungary, in Poland and elsewhere, can create a situation where you no longer have 
a free and fair competition for the election. And I think this is the big difference between East and West. I mean, whatever your reservation may be about the way Trump is uh, uh, going about it, we we have institutions in the United States, uh, uh, the Congress, uh, 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 the Constitutional Court, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the different states and their courts, which are counterweights. And then you have civil society, of course, and the powerful mob. So these are counterweights to the uh, illiberal drift. In Central Europe, those counterweights are much, much weaker. Mm-hmm. Institutional, constitutional, civil society. So this is where the differences are. And of course, the longer this trend continues, the more serious the problem. Yeah. Even though we are not going to talk about America, but I think many of us were actually a little bit surprised that, you know, this robustness of institutions was also put to question under Trump. Uh, But uh, let's uh, build on your expertise uh, on Central Europe. And uh, so let's zoom in uh, and uh, talk a little bit more about um, elites in Central Europe and especially elites who came to power in the early 90s. most of them we can we can say subscribed to uh, certain values uh, like rule of law uh, free market uh, ideas uh, they had very inclusive approach uh, to nationality or or uh, citizenship uh, so it was based on civic uh, uh, civic values rather than soil and blood um, and of course, they also somehow uh, expected that religion is uh, your private private thing. Um, so we can say that these values dominated uh, the region, uh, even though in some countries probably it's religion, it was a little bit different, but still. Uh, do you think that these uh, elites, that they bear some responsibility for what's going on in uh, Central and Eastern Europe now? You know, that they missed something, that they maybe did not uh, recognize enough that uh, there were some losers of uh, the transformation and economic transition and uh, that they simply missed that? Well, uh, there are a number of uh, ways of going at it. Uh, Let's start with the very beginning. You know, have we missed something at the very beginning, you know, after 1989? And I'm saying that as somebody who was very close to to, to Václav Havel and uh, and think, well, you know, uh, what, you know, was there anything that, it is very, it is true that the, let's say, intellectuals or people who, were, who had been associated with dissent in the pre-89 period had very strong uh, commitment to values of the new democracies. So they were very strong on that, you know, rights, human rights, ethic, the ethical principle in politics, etc. They were very, very strong on that very weak on everything to do with economic and uh, social issues. Because, first of all, they knew precious little about it. And secondly, they thought, this is not the main issue today. We have to build democratic institutions. Now, there was this was the part of the elite that came from dissent. That more or less vanished within a matter of months or years. So basically, in the Czech case, by, by June 92, they were gone, more or less, with few exceptions here and there, etc. 
And then you had a different elite that established itself. And that came from the economic institutes. And that were people who knew something about the economy, exactly the opposite of the, of the previous group I mentioned. I said, we should not be bothered too much by legal constraints, rule of law, and all these legal norms. Speed is of the essence. We need economic transformation. Don't, you know, don't be too fussy about the way we go about it. And leave it to us, because we know how to do it. Exactly. We are the opposite of those dreamers that you elected in 1989 or that you supported in 1989. But, you know, they, they, they basically fulfilled their task. Thank you very much. And now it's our turn. And they dominated the transformation period. I'm not now discussing the merits or the economic success of it. On the whole, the results were not bad. but what the prime victim of that period was uh, the rule of law and basically the, the idea that you carry out a transformation without too much concern for the rule of law because you should not be too scrupulous when you are privatizing the whole economy. This was unprecedented, privatizing the whole economy. Uh, and uh, you preferably do it without concern for civil society, because these are people who meddle in things and they don't know anything about it. And they basically going to delay you. And speed, as I said, speed is of the essence. So in Poland, it was called shock therapy. In Czech case, Václav Klaus. Each country had its own variation on that theme. But basically, you had, a, you had an elite that was not interested in values or defending uh, uh, democratic or rule of law principles and things like that. But that was thriving on its economic agenda, which culminated in, um, in access to the European Union. And even the access to the European Union was not seen by many, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the argument, as uh, really adhering to the values that the EU represents, uh, which are precisely democratic values, uh, rule of law, uh, um, solidarity, etc. Uh, you know, you you emphasize the economic agenda. We have to be there because this is the single market. This is where benefits transfers, you know, uh, uh, subsidies will be coming from, and this is where we should be. And uh, so you twisted the European agenda into an economic and technocratic agenda. Oh, these are basically European norms we have to do in order to fit into the European market and successfully perform. And they did perform successfully, so no quarrel with that. But you forget, therefore, about what was crucial, the dissident legacy that created the new ethos of 1989 democracy, ethics. No, ethics is your entry ticket into politics. That is the first dissident message. Second dissident message, rule of law. They're fighting for human rights. We're fighting for constitutionalism. You're fighting for a society where rule of law matters. And thirdly, you have this European dimension, but it is joining a European project based on values. That is all being sidetracked by this economic and technocratic agenda. That works more or less okay when you're basically going on automatic pilot. Things to be, you know, 
it was not called the end of history, but more or less once you join the EU, you're there, you're anchored, and prosperity is the only horizon you are promising your people. And then comes a crisis. Starts with an economic crisis, financial crisis, migration crisis. Now we are COVID crisis. We have a series of crises where the foundations of the systems are being shaken from different perspectives, but they are being shaken. And we have an elite, <laughs> which is, uh, 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 well, in various countries, of course, responding differently. But if we take it in the Polish and Hungarian case, they're saying the, the post-89 agenda was a misguided one. It was a liberal agenda. And what we need now is to return to the fundamentals of what we stand for, and that is basically the family, the nation, the church. And these are the core values that we defend, and the, e the European Union, or whatever else you might have, is essentially an economic appendix to NATO. So NATO is our security, politics, this is our domestic affairs, nobody should meddle in it, and what the EU is for, well, uh, our economic prosperity. So it's a very different approach we have. In the Czech case, we have, uh, you could call it entrepreneurial populism, that is somebody who leaves out the ideological debates about conservatives versus liberal values. No, it's pure economic pragmatism, efficiency. I am here because I know how to handle it. The state should be run like a company. This is what he says. And uh, uh, we are doers. All this parliament is a talk shop. Again, this is a quote. So once you have this approach <laughs> to the institutions <laughs> of parliamentary democracy, well, uh, you are on shaky grounds. And so long as you're within the European Union and so long as certain constraints exist, it need not go too far if it doesn't last too long. <laughs> but if that kind of state of mind is accepted in the long run, that values don't matter, legal norms are uh, basically flexible or uh, uh, something that we can dispense with, and that what matters is only performance and uh, we ensure your security, we ensure your prosperity, leave it to us. And so that, that's a Czech version the Hungarian and Polish version is more ambitious. We have an alternative agenda to the liberal agenda that has triumphed after 1989. And this is, in a way, more interesting, I would say, in the debate about democracy. Because here are people who say, you are talking about democracy and rule of law as, as being the one being the condition for the other. Uh, that's liberal democracy. But we have a different view of democracy. We represent the people, we have been elected, we have a majority. Sometimes, like in Hungary, we have a two-thirds majority, therefore we have constitutional right. We can change the constitution. And they did adopt new constitution. And they even adopted 500 new amendments to the new constitution. So, uh, uh, we have uh, popular sovereignty, which gives us the power. The legal constraints are simply a straitjacket uh, 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 Kaczynski in Poland called it, called it legal impossibilism. You, are, you have this straitjacket 
of the constitution of the European Union, etc. This is a straitjacket. We have to free ourselves from this straitjacket. So this is uh, 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 so this is give it to us in the name of popular sovereignty. We will take care of the executive power. And then the flip side of the coin is popular sovereignty is national sovereignty. So because we have popular sovereignty, we represent the nation. And as such, we refrain any interference from the European Union into our domestic uh, affairs. So national sovereignty, this is, we build fences. We protect ourselves from external uh, uh, intrusions, but we also protect ourselves from intrusions of Brussels and the European Union. And so popular sovereignty and national sovereignty, these are the two constitutive elements from the new populist in power in Hungary, in Poland. In milder versions, you see similar trends elsewhere. In the Czech case, it's a much more pragmatic version. In Slovakia, you have Fico's left-wing populism replaced by populism of a new kind. The two parties that are in coalition are called, we are, uh, 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 they are called ordinary people, and they are in coalition with a party called We Are of One Family. So ordinary people and one family, this is the definition of populism in Central Europe, as good as you get it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, it's, it was very interesting to hear and uh, learn more about the differences in populisms in, in Central Europe. And uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, which one will, will prevail or if uh, uh, we will see some, uh, you know, the process of de democratization being stopped and uh, democracy uh, being uh, restored, especially in Hungary and, and uh, in a limited way in Poland. Thank you very much for your time and uh, for being with us and have a good day. Thank you.